presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our second in, a, in our series on the book of Daniel that I've entitled Daniel Surviving the System and the subtitle is Serving God in a Secular Society. Today we're looking at chapter 2 that I've entitled Dealing with Unreasonable Demands and I think as we work our way through that uh, you will certainly see that. Just by way of review in our last session when we looked at chapter 1 you remember that Daniel and his, uh, at least three of his friends were taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Uh, they were relocated. Uh, they began the process of re-education. And as well, they began the process of re-socialization because they all were given new names. They had to learn all of the... Uh, things about uh, Babylon. They had to learn about the religion and the culture and all of those kinds of things. And, and we saw how Daniel and his friends remained faithful to the Lord in, in that they would not eat any kind of food that had been sacrificed to idols. But rather than making a real issue of it and uh, what they did was that they uh, made an appeal, and uh, it was a it was a reasonable alternative that they offered. Said test us uh, for three days. I'm sorry for ten days, and if you discover that uh, we're doing as well or better than everybody else, then perhaps you can just leave us on these uh, on this veggie and water diet. And of course, God in His mercy and in His faithfulness uh, did so. And as 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 the chapter ended we saw that Daniel and his friends well, did very well. In fact, they did better than anybody else in the, uh, in the school. So that's what we looked at uh, in our last session. Now, in order to, uh, when we pick up the story today, uh, Daniel 2 begins, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Well, we remember that uh, the first year of Nebuchadnezzar was the year 605 B.C. So we're looking at the year 604 B.C. when this uh, happens. And of course, what we know is that Daniel and his friends at this time are in school. Because remember, they we learned last week that they were going to be re-educated, um, or educated, they called it, but uh, essentially re-educated for a period of about three, four, three years, and then after which they would enter into the king's service. So when uh, Daniel 2 begins in the second year of his reign, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going about his business of ruling, but uh, the and of course there are a lot of wise men around who are uh, seeking to advise the king. But at this point, Daniel and his friends are not among those people, not among those advisors, because they are in school at the time. So let's pick up the story. Uh, I might mention here also, and this is uh, just a little aside, this won't be on the final exam, 
But remember that uh, the book of Daniel is written in two different languages. The first chapter is written in the book uh, in the language of Hebrew, and in fact, it continues to be in Hebrew uh, through about the middle of verse four of chapter two. Then it changes to Aramaic, and the language remains Aramaic all the way through the end of chapter seven. At which time, uh, at the beginning of chapter eight, it changes back to Hebrew. And and so as we work our way through this, uh, this book of Daniel, we want to keep that in mind and ask ourselves why. Why use these two different languages? Because I think we'll discover that Daniel has a perfectly good reason for doing this. And one other just sort of introductory thought before we get into the, to the real meat of the story, and that is chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Daniel are really... Uh, uh, not only about Daniel and his friends, but also they're about the salvation of a Gentile king named Nebuchadnezzar. What we're going to see today is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to hear about the power of God. But when it's all over, it's really not going to make that much of an impact in Nebuchadnezzar's life. In our next session in chapter 3, we'll see that, uh, and Daniel won't be present in that one, but his three friends will be, and that's when they'll go into the furnace. And we'll see in that chapter that Nebuchadnezzar will see the power of God in action as those three, uh, as those three men are spared that fiery, uh, the, the effects of that fiery furnace. But again, it will have no lasting impact on Nebuchadnezzar. It's only when we come to chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar experiences personally the power of God. And I don't want to give away the story. I'm sure you've already read it in advance as, as part of your uh, reading. But the, uh, that's, so, so the point I'm making is that chapters 2, 3, and 4 are really about the salvation of a Gentile king. And each one of these chapters, you really see some glimpses of the gospel. And we'll try to uh, point out some of those as we as we work our way through it. Okay, back to Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, that is in the year 604 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then they, uh, that is all of these, these guys, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, etc., answered the king in Aramaic. Notice this is when, the, this is when the, it changes to the uh, Aramaic language. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Notice uh, there's a real confidence on the part of the counselors here. Alright king, you tell us the dream. We'll tell you exactly what it means. So there's, uh, there's no problem as far as they're concerned. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided if you don't tell me what my uh, <clears throat> what my dream was and interpret it I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble but if you tell me the dream and explain it you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor so tell me the dream and interpret it for me 
Notice uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a typical Eastern monarch. He didn't mess around, and apparently Nebuchadnezzar has become suspicious of his counselors because uh, apparently he had somehow gotten the idea that they just kind of would tell him what he wanted to hear. So he said, well, I'm going to check you out and see if you really know your stuff because you say you can interpret it, but if you're really in touch the way you claim to be, then certainly you ought to even be able to tell me what the dream was, and then you can tell me what it means. So, notice what happens. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Again, they're just—they're really confident, but I'm, they may have been beginning to shake by this time. Then the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time. So notice, clearly, he's suspicious of them. Because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you don't tell me the dream, there's just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So notice, he, and it's clear from that verse that he is testing his advisors. I just don't trust you guys. If, if you're really in the know, you'll be able to tell me what the dream is and what the dream means. So then, he goes on, tell me the dream and I'll know that you can interpret it for me. And the astrologers answered the king, There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Notice how the counselors respond at this point. They're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, what you're, what you're requiring of us is beyond human intellect in the first place. Secondly, in order to be able to do this, we would need God's help. And the gods aren't living among us, so we're not going to be, we're not in, we're just not in touch with them. And notice, now, mind you, think, think about this. Think about uh, the, the king's dream. He's, he's making an unreasonable demand, uh, certainly because he's a suspicious type fellow, but he's saying, I'm going to turn your houses into rubble, and I'm going to kill all of you, or you'll either get a great reward and it'll be a delightful experience for all of you. It's either one extreme or the other. You guys need to come across. Now, this is not the first time we've seen someone have a, have a, a dream. Remember back in, uh, in the patriarch Joseph's day, it was uh, while he was still in jail, in prison, and had been in prison uh, for some 13 years, but Pharaoh had that dream about the, the fat cows and the skinny cows and the big ears of corn and the shriveled up ears of corn, and nobody, none of his advisors could make head nor tails of it. And so his wine taster, who remember, who had been in jail a brief time, and Joseph had ministered to him, uh, the wine taster said, Whoa, uh, Pharaoh, a couple of years ago, remember when you threw me in prison? There was a, there was a Hebrew fellow down there who, uh, who explained to me what, what my dream is. He also explained it to the baker as well, and they both turned out just exactly like he said. So he sent for Joseph. Joseph came up and explained what the dream meant 
and of course Joseph was uh, was elevated uh, to governor or prime minister over all of Egypt before it was all over. So it was it was certainly not an uncommon thing for uh, sovereigns. Uh, Rulers to have these kind of counselors, and uh, and they uh, spent a lot of uh, uh, time and I guess effort as well, seeking to understand visions and dreams, so that they could they could try to uh, uh, help their uh, help the ruling monarch to know exactly what to do in certain situations. But apparently, in the case that we're looking at here in Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had become very suspicious of his counselors that. They were just always biding their time. Perhaps they were just taking advantage of the situation and just kind of go along, get along sort of attitude. So now it's either you get the job done or it's going to mean death for, for all of you. And, his, uh, and so he makes the decree there in verse 12. It says this, and the this refers to their inability to do so, and they're saying, hey, nobody's ever, nobody's ever asked anybody to do something like this, which was probably true. But uh, that didn't sit well with Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. He expected to get it that way, and uh, they weren't producing. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. I'm I'm just going to start over with my advisors. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now, remember, Daniel and his pals are in school at the time. So why put them to death? Well, the only, I guess, reasonable explanation is if the advisors that you don't trust are the ones who are teaching the next uh, generation of advisors, that is the ones who are coming up, then this... this whole attitude that they have is going to be passed on to this next generation of advisors. And King says, hey, I'm just going to get rid of the lot of you. All of you are going to be gone and I'll just start over from scratch is essentially where he is. And we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was just filled with anger and rage uh, and a lot of pride as well. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Notice Daniel is calm. Uh, he is courageous at this point. He doesn't seem to freak out. Uh, I probably would have, but Daniel didn't. He says, he asked the king's officer. Now notice, he, he's trying to understand what's going on. Here I am, you know, I'm studying astrology, and you come in here with your sword out of the sheath. So, <clears throat> area, uh, he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. Now, now again, this this says a lot about the kind of person Daniel was because Arioch has got a command from the king to put all these people to death. And Daniel says, hey, what's the rush? What's going on? And apparently there is such a relationship, um, an affinity that has formed between Daniel and the people around him, including this guy named Arioch, that Arioch is willing to explain what's going on rather than just carry out the king's command at, the, at that point. 
point. <clears throat> so he explained it, and then it says, At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time. Notice Daniel didn't protest. What, well, what have I got to do with this? I, we've been living over in Judah. We've only been here for a year. We're not in cahoots with these guys, these other advisors. Boy, I tell you what, I, I can understand why you're upset with them, king. But why would you do this to us? No protests on the part of Daniel whatsoever. His first thing that he does after he asks the king for some time is he goes to prayer. He says, there's only one person. The, 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 uh, the, the older advisors were right in one respect, and that is if you're going to be able to do this, you're going to need God's help. Now, they were talking about pagan gods. Daniel knows that he needs the help of the only true God that there is. But it says that this Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And notice how, here again, you see the grace of God in action because he has access to the king and also when he made this request the king actually granted it to Daniel and I I suppose that this speaks a lot about how much that dream had upset the king because if there's an outside chance that given somebody just a little bit of time not a lot of time like these older advisors would say but these young fellows who seem to be on the ball and these young fellows who seem to have a lot of integrity uh, if I give them a little bit of time maybe I can find out really what this dream is all about so it says uh, he goes on to say then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah he urged them and here's, here's what he said to pray he said okay guys it's time for a prayer meeting and we need to, we need to get at it he said he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now that that sort of surprises us when we read that because you say, well, gee whiz, the only people that Daniel's concerned about is, is himself and his buddies. Uh, what about all these other guys? Well, just hold that thought and don't make any judgments on Daniel at this point. But anyway, he, he certainly is not interested in, uh, in dying over this situation. Verse 19, God answers the prayer. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said and what follows is a prayer of thanksgiving now, now think about this you've got this uh, you've got this sentence of death that's hanging over you uh, the king has agreed to give you a, a, well here an undetermined amount of time to figure out what the dream is and what the dream uh, means and so all of a sudden during the night you pray and God in his mercy reveals it to you oh now I know what the dream is and I understand God has shown me what the dream means hot dog let's go let's go let's head for Nebuchadnezzar's throne right now so we can get over there and be sure that this thing doesn't go any 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 farther any further and so uh, but that's not what Daniel does notice the first thing that he does is he gets he gets if he's if he's gotten off his knees he gets back on his knees because he says 
Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with Him. Notice he, God is the only one who could tell us this sort of thing. Notice that, that uh, even though they had the prayer meeting and there were at least there were the four of them who were praying about this, the answer is revealed not to uh, the other three, but the answer is revealed to Daniel. But the answer that Daniel gets is going to help everybody here. And the first thing he does is to praise God and to thank Him. And he, in his praising God, he talks about God. He talks about the, the power of God and uh, how marvelous God is. He, he thanks God for the answer that, uh, that, that God has given him. And he maintains a very humble attitude in all of this. We go on in verse 23. It says, I thank and praise You, O God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. Notice, you have made known to me what we ask of you. And remember, as believers in Christ, we're all in one body. And we all have different gifts. And the reason that we have different gifts is why? So we can minister to one another. This is a good example of that. They're all praying about this desperate situation in which they find themselves. But God reveals the answer to, uh, to one of them, to Daniel. But that answer that He gives to Daniel, Daniel is going to be uh, able to use that to minister to the whole group, to save, to save the group. He says, You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So, first thing he does is not to run to the king and say, Hey, hey, call off the guys with the swords. The first thing he does is to praise and thank God before he goes to the king to tell him that. It says, Then Daniel went to Arioch. Remember, that's the that's guy who's in charge of all the executions at this point. And he said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Now, are you feeling better now about Daniel? Well, you should. Because now it's not just uh, me and my three buddies. It's all of the wise men of Babylon. Even these pagans who worship these false, all these false gods. said, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I'll interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, Now notice what Arioch says. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. What is Arioch doing? Arioch is taking the credit. But that doesn't seem to bother Daniel at all because Daniel's not going to take the credit either. Just like you remember again, uh, I commented earlier on Joseph standing before Pharaoh. You remember when he was when he was finally called in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, "I understand you can tell tell these dreams and what all this stuff means." And and Joseph's initial response and his continuing response always the same. No. I, it's not in me, 
but it's God who can do this kind of thing. And then as he as as Pharaoh told him what the uh, what his dreams or essentially nightmares were, then. Uh, Remember Joseph's response? He said, God has revealed what he's going to do. This is what it means. God has revealed to Pharaoh such and such. God has revealed to Pharaoh this, that, and the other. And so we're going to see that with Daniel. But Arioch is taking the credit. It doesn't seem to bother uh, Daniel uh, whatsoever. It says the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, remember that's his, uh, that's his Babylonian name, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. Well, that's the same thing that, that, the, that the old veteran uh, counselors had said. But Daniel didn't stop there. He said, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Notice, he's giving the glory to God. Now, it's not up to me. God was merciful and He revealed this to me and I'm going to tell you what it means. But the only reason I can tell you what it means is not because I'm smarter than everybody else, not because I'm more discerning than everybody else. The whole reason is because God is going to make it uh, available to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. So, he says, he goes on to say, uh, there in verse 28, he says, He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. So apparently what Nebuchadnezzar was wondering as he went to sleep was, was what's next? You know, I've, I've conquered this huge territory, and I'm a king over this huge territory. And remember, before his before his rule is all over, he will have constructed the uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, Babylon will be just this tremendously majestic city, about 15 miles square, walls some over 300 feet tall, over 80 feet thick. They would they could have chariots races on the top of those walls. It was, it was just a magnificent kingdom. In, in fact, the palace inside the walls of Babylon were, uh, were like six miles long. Just a phenomenal kind of place. Now, at this point, it would probably be helpful. Uh, I know you've, you've been, we've been going through your notes so far, your notes and outlines, but there's another piece of uh, paper that you should have if you, if, you, if you fail to pick it up on the way in. Uh, it's back there by the door. But it's, this, uh, it's the one that said Nebuchadnezzar's dream from Daniel 2. And it's got a, a, a picture of a, uh, of a strange looking statue on there now I I did not draw the statue in fact I found this on the internet and there was no uh, <clears throat> there was nothing listed there to say where it came from if there had been I would give credit to whoever did the original drawing but at this point it might be helpful for you to be looking at
at that illustration as well as following along in the text as we talk about this. It says he has uh, back to our story. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. Now he's going to tell him what the dream was. Now, uh, the old King James says that the, that that he had forgotten the dream. The newer translations, I think, are much more accurate. It wasn't a matter of forgetting the dream. The problem was that Nebuchadnezzar was just real suspicious that these uh, that these counselors and advisors weren't living up to what they should have been doing and just uh, doing the best they could not for the king but for themselves and by testing them this way he's going to find out who's really in contact with the so-called gods out there somewhere and so Daniel is going to tell him exactly what he had dreamed and then what it means and in the process is going to give the glory to the only true God alright so let's keep reading as you were lying there O king your mind turned to things to come there's that idea well, well, what, is it that's, uh, what is it that's coming next and incident well, well <clears throat> let's read a little more and then I want to make another comment as you were lying there O king your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen as for me this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than other living men but so that you O king may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind you're wondering about the future well king Nebuchadnezzar God is going to tell you about the future now before we get into the dream let me just let me just mention this to you what is written here is so extremely accurate I mean it's perfectly accurate that some liberal scholars doubt that it's even prophecy they are convinced that for something to be this accurate it must have been written after the fact that is it was written as history but we know that God himself writes history he he he, he knows the end from the beginning. So as far as God is concerned, this is not a problem. So don't let anybody uh, try to talk you into anything else. Uh, so, the, so the whole purpose of the revelation that he's gonna, is to show him the future, is, to sh- is so that he'll know what the meaning is, so that he'll understand the implications of all of that. And there are a couple of things that you're going to notice about the, uh, uh, as, you, as you look at that diagram and as we read through this, there, there are two things to keep in mind. First of all, there is a multi-metallic image. Uh, uh, gold and silver and bronze and iron and then some mixture of uh, stuff that not even metal it's iron and, and baked clay mixed together and then there is this mysterious rock that just seems to come out of nowhere and so Daniel is going to describe those things that were there in the dream and then he's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar what those things mean and remember all of this relates to showing Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen in the future so that Nebuchadnezzar will understand 
what, what, what is coming up in the future and that there are some implications to all of that. And, if, and again, God is going to use this as well as the events of chapter 3 and chapter 4 in order ultimately to bring Nebuchadnezzar to faith in himself. Alright, well again, back to the story. Verse 31. You looked, O king, and there stood before you, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now we understand why Nebuchadnezzar was frightened. This this statue, this gorgeous statue, all of a sudden, you know, and, and it's got all of these man-made materials. It's been it's been formed obviously by human hands. This this image with all of these features and and all of these various metals, and all of a sudden there's this rock that just comes out of nowhere, lands on the feet of this image, smashes the feet, and when it does, the whole image just, uh, as it were, turns powdery. Collapses and then the winds just blow everything away. So there are no vestiges of these of, of this statue that's left, and the rock that did that all of a sudden then grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and just fills the whole earth and becomes a as it were a huge mountain. So you can understand. Good grief! No no wonder uh, Nebuchadnezzar was was afraid. Now, as you look, as you think about this, uh, well, let's let's go on and look at the uh, the the interpretation, and then we'll look uh, at some of the uh, uh, particulars about the illustration. Uh, verse thirty-six. This was the dream. All right, and I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar is sitting there shaking his head saying, that is exactly what the dream was. And I'm sure the anticipation is great because Nebuchadnezzar wants to know what in the world does this mean? Is is this related to me in some way? And now we will interpret it to the king. Now what is the we? Is that, uh, is that Daniel and his three friends? Is that Daniel and God? Uh, or is that just sort of like the royal we that sometimes we, uh, that we use? I, I don't know and I'm not sure you can make a case for any of them. But anyway, he's going to tell him what it means. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. Now, when he says that, he's not equating him with Jesus. But remember, who is it that raised up Nebuchadnezzar um, and put him in a position where the people of Judah would now be in Babylon? And that was uh, that was God Himself who did it. If you flip back to the first page of your notes, 
under the uh, Roman numeral 2. You'll notice that passage from Jeremiah 27 and notice what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar. Notice God says of Nebuchadnezzar, he is God's servant. My servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. In other words, I'm bringing judgment on my people in the land of Judah right now. And remember, in the New Testament tells us that judgment always begins where? It begins at the house of God. God starts with His own folks and brings chastisement on them before He, before he gets to the other folks. I remember it's uh, when I was a little kid growing up, and I may have, used, may have told you this before. But in growing up, if we got, uh, we had a fenced-in backyard, and uh, my mom particularly liked it if uh, if we played in the backyard because she knew where I was and uh, she could kind of keep an eye on things. And if we got too rowdy, if we got too rowdy, uh, she could she could deal with it right away. And when when uh, you know, and if I wasn't quick to obey, she'd call me in and put a spanking on me and run everybody else off. But see, where did she start? She started with me. And that's what God has done with the, uh, with the folks of the, the land of Judah. And of course, uh, Daniel's been taken captive and his friends, and there was a small contingent who was taken captive in 605, but there are going to be uh, actually three more deportations. And, uh, and the second one that's going to come is going to be a huge one. I mean, there are a lot of folks going to be taken and a lot more of them going to be killed than, uh, than taken. But anyway, he says uh, eventually... God is going to deal even with Babylon. He says all nations will serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. Well, that that really ties in with this illustration that we're looking at from Daniel chapter 2, this statue, because it tells us about the kingdoms that are going to follow the, uh, the, uh, this, this head of gold that we're about to discover is none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself, who of course stands for Babylon. It says back, back in verse 37, some of you thought we'd never get there, I'm sure. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. See, we just, we just read that from Jeremiah. In your hands He has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, He, has made, he God, has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, when you, when you saw in your dream that big statue, and it, and it was that multi-metallic statue, and the, the head was of gold, that represented you. That represented you. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, 
a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Now, when it says he'll rule over the whole earth, doesn't mean he's going to rule over Australia and North and South America, but it has to do with the uh, with the known world at that time, and particularly the world around uh, around the area of Israel. Uh, north of that, east and west of that, they would go in somewhat into Europe, but mostly over into the area of Asia. But when he talked about the whole earth, it was sort of the known earth at the time. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. That's this fourth kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. All right, let's pause there for just a minute. Now, again, I want you to refer you to the illustration with the uh, with the image on it. Now, now the, the copies that I brought. Remember, I I did email this to you, and uh, so it's uh, it's in it's in color on your computer. But uh, rather than using up my my color cartridge, I just uh, printed it in black and white for you. So you've got this image that's uh, a multi-metallic image, and notice several. Let's let's notice several things about the image. First of all, as you go as you look at the image from from top to bottom, first of all, there is an increase in the hardness and the strength of the uh, of the metals themselves. Uh, gold, while it is the most valuable, is the uh, is the weakest. And next, there's silver, and then bronze, which is an alloy, and then of course iron. And even in the in the text here, it said iron smashes everything. Uh, so there's an increase in the hardness and the strength at least down until you get down to the ankles of the thing and then you've got uh, the weakest part of the statue which is a mixture of iron and baked clay. Um, while there is an increase in the hardness, there's also a decrease in value. There's a decrease in brilliance. Gold certainly is more brilliant than iron or bronze or even silver. Uh, There's also as we shall see as we work our way through this that there's a decrease in sovereignty as well. Um, that is, in terms of the government, the way the, the, the empire was ruled, we, we will see as we work our way through this, uh, especially uh, in these next couple of chapters, that Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. What he said went, and that's the way it was. But when the next power comes in, which we know is the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire. And the reason we know that is is based on two things. First of all, the uh, uh, if you get out a uh, book of, uh, of history, you'll discover that those are the, the powers that followed the, uh, the Babylonian Empire. But even more so than that, and when you read chapter 8, chapter 8 specifically names Medo-Persia and Greece as the empires who will 
follow successively. So we know who those are uh, down through the uh, down through the the abs and the uh, and the thighs, and it's clear that the iron would represent Rome because Rome followed the uh, the, the the Greek. Uh, Greek Empire. Remember that uh, Alexander died. I think it was around. Uh, he died at age, I believe, 32. And uh, when he died, his kingdom divided into four parts. In fact, uh, Daniel 8 is going to even talk about that. And uh, as a result of that, uh, that kingdom began to diminish somewhat because it was broken into four parts and it was in uh, 63 BC that Rome really came to the uh, to the forefront and became the predominant uh, empire or a republic if you uh, if you prefer at that point but getting back to my point and some of you wondering if I ever would and that is Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute sovereign, but when you get to the second, uh, the, the the successive uh, empire, that is of the Medes and the Persians, and we'll we'll see them. Uh, let's see, first of all, in Daniel chapter six. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't want to give away what's in Daniel chapter six. But when we get to there, you're going to discover that the, that the ruler, the king, was while he was certainly a monarch, uh, it was a kingdom that was ruled by law. And in fact, the king himself was subject to that law. In other words, the king could make a law, but once the law was made, the law had to be obeyed, and the law had to be obeyed even by the king. So that's sort of a diminishing of authority, and that's that's the point that I make. And when you get to uh, when you get to Greece, that finally turned into an oligarchy that is ruled by a few, as as Nebuchadnezzar, as uh, Alexander faded off the scene, and the the four generals who succeeded him um, came to pass and then finally you've got uh, uh, democracy shown uh, particularly in those toes where you've got a, where you've got a mixture of iron which certainly is a picture of strength but it's mixed mixed with baked clay and of course clay comes from the earth and earth is is what man was made from so that's a picture uh, most scholars believe of uh, of human beings and there's a so there's a mixture uh, of democracy Democracy, uh, sort of a well. Let, let me just leave it there. There's, there's just kind of a mixture here of, of democracy. Now, what, what does all of this mean? Well, notice. Uh, let's let's go back to our let's go back to our text for a minute. It says, as the to- verse forty two, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So while there there seems to be uh, uh, one person in charge, like a like a ruler uh, through Babylon and Medo Persia and then the beginning of Greece and even when it breaks into its four constituent parts there's a there's a monarch who seems to be in charge there by the time you get to the end of the the Roman Empire and remember the Roman Empire split into two parts and that's that's the reason the you've got two legs on the statue and the eastern the western part of the Roman Empire lasted until 476 uh, uh, AD and the eastern part of the empire 
lasted, oh really, almost another thousand years beyond that. That was around 1453 when the eastern part was uh, came to an end. In fact, up until that point, it became known as the Byzantine Empire after the after the the west uh, side fell. But the uh, all right, so let's get back to our uh, to our study because because we, we the most important part is is uh, is still coming up, verse forty four, and the time of those kings that is when this thing is all divided up and you've, we're down to the toes here, and there's uh, some sort of uh, uh, the, the Roman rule and and some some scholars believe that uh, this sort of a reconstituted Roman Empire. That's European in composition, perhaps uh, or perhaps not. The Catholic Church is involved. So other people say this is a re, uh, reconstituted Holy Roman Empire. Uh, an alternative view that I have heard is that this is a this represents a coalition of Muslim nations. The iron represents a monarchy or an oligarchy, and the clay represents democracy. And this sort of some sort of mixture right here. And so, but he's, he's saying, in the time of those kings, whenever this happens, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. So it's going to, so an eternal kingdom is coming. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself, it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. And then notice the commentary that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now let's let's think about that stone that's cut out without hands because that's that's the whole focal point of this. Don't think that 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 the big deal is the statue itself. The statue itself we, we could have figured out the statue without Daniel chapter 8. Uh, if if we know that the 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 head is Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar, we could figure out the rest of it by reading a history book. But what what about this stone that falls on these toes down here and smashes them all to pieces. What is that all about? Well, if you look in your notes in that left-hand column where he talks about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's position as at the at the exalted position, and he was placed there by the only true God. And then there are the subsequent kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks, and ultimately the uh, the Romans. Uh, notice that there is the establishment that follows of God's kingdom. Now, isn't it interesting that the first advent of Christ? Occurred at the time that the Romans were occupying Judea. Isn't that interesting? And of course, when Jesus preached, what did he preach? He preached the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. In fact, it was John the Baptizer who was preaching that there would one, there would one who one was coming right after him, who uh, whose remember his uh, his his sandal latches. He he was not worthy to unloose. And when Jesus came, he came preaching the kingdom of God. 
and those who embraced Him uh, are born into the kingdom of God. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. But as many as did receive Him, to those He gave the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. But of course, Jesus had to die for the sins of His people, subsequently was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and is is waiting at this point to return for His second advent. And this is what this stone is all about. That there is coming a time in which this the, the second advent is going to occur. Notice uh, again in your notes uh, that passage from where we were just discussing under Roman numeral 4 part B. The passage from Matthew chapter 21 <clears throat> Jesus said to them, and he's talking to the, uh, as I recall, to the scribes and the Pharisees at this point. He says, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, that is, you. Scribes and Pharisees, you who who think you've got your act all together, who've made up all these extra rules and regulations, who go out of your way to proselytize, but won't go out of your way to help lift the burdens of those who need help. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit, that is, to true believers. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That's a picture of repentance. That's the one, that's an option that we can come if we come to Christ in repentance and in faith, he will save us. We become part of God's kingdom. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. If we do not repent, if we do not come to Christ in faith, then we will be crushed by this stone. Remember, when you read the book of Revelation, it says, in that day, it says, uh, it says, in that day, when all of this stuff is, is, is coming to an end, all coming to pass, and it's the, the second advent of the Lord, it says that in spite of all the things that are going on, nobody is repenting. And what happens is, is people begin to cry out, oh, they cry out to the mountains to fall on us and crush us and, and save us from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, let me tell you what, there's nothing that can save you from the wrath of the Lamb except the blood of the Lamb. Have you put your faith in Christ? See, this is a glimpse of the Gospel. This is a glimpse of the fact that the Lord Jesus would come. And when He comes... He's coming in judgment to the, in the second advent. He's coming in judgment. He's not coming for salvation in, in the sense of uh, as He did in the first advent. He's coming to bring judgment on the earth. Don't wait till it's too late. You need to cry out, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. Do you know for sure? that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know for sure that you belong to Him? If you die today, how do you know? Do you know where you'll go? Do you know where you'll go immediately? Will it be to be in the presence of the Lord or will it be to be in a place of torment? 
Those are questions that are important to ask ourselves. Either we are broken to pieces as we fall upon the stone in repentance, or the stone will crush us. And that's the picture of what Nebuchadnezzar saw. Now back to our back to the original text. The, let's reread that last little commentary that Daniel made. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now notice Nebuchadnezzar's response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Notice, not to his God, not to the true God, but to Daniel himself. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God, not not my God, not any of the gods that I serve, Nebuchadnezzar would say, but surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Notice what what Nebuchadnezzar did. His response to this tremendous thing that he has just heard about is that I'm going to add your God to my pantheon. Boy, your God really is a God of gods, isn't He? Boy, He is really something. It's not that mine aren't worth anything, but I'll just add yours to mine. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Boy, that was a setup for trouble, as we shall see. Because you know how jealous people are. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he, he got this teenager who is... Uh, uh, who is a different ethnicity from the guys who have been hanging around in Babylon and putting in all their time, all this time. Oh my, this is a setup for jealousy. Moreover, at Daniel's request, Daniel didn't forget about his friends, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, that's, that's their um, Babylonian names. He appointed them administrators over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. And that's a, that's a... Well, I'm going to say it anyway. It's another fascinating uh, part of this. Remember that Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah were all contemporaries. Jeremiah got, got started first because he had been prophesying for something like about 20... I think 22 or 23 years prior to the time uh, that Nebuchadnezzar came in 605 and, and hauled off a few folks. But it's interesting to note that of these, these three contemporary prophets that Daniel is the one who, who wound up in the, in the throne room along with uh, Nebuchadnezzar and later on Belshazzar and then later on Darius the Mede and later than that Cyrus the Persian uh, he was always in that position, and he was in a position where he could where he could influence uh, the people that made laws. He could influence those people for good. Ezekiel, on the other hand, was uh, was taken captive to Babylon, not at the same time that Daniel and his friends were, but subsequent to that. And but he was he was a real encouragement to the people themselves as he remained among the people. Jeremiah was never taken to Babylon. He he was he, he was he was not 
taken there. He, when eventually, when the city finally was uh, was burned down and the temple and the city destroyed in uh, 586. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had told his general, he said, look, find Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah had been writing letters to the people back in Babylon saying, look, you need to do the right thing back there. You need to pray for the leaders who are in charge. Go ahead and, and set up your businesses, set up your homes. Eventually God's going to bring you back, but He's not going to bring you back early. You need to just go ahead and do what you're supposed to do. Nebuchadnezzar recognized that, and so he told his general, he said, you find Jeremiah and whatever Jeremiah wants to do, if he wants to stay there, that's fine. If he wants to come to Babylon, that's fine. You just look after him. And Jeremiah opted to stay in Jerusalem, but before it was all over, some of the folks who had remained there um, turned traitor and they grabbed Jeremiah, took him down to Egypt, and most people think that's probably where he died. But now, let's. Uh, oh my goodness, our time is is drawing here to a close. What uh, what sort of application do we make from all of this? First of all, there are there are a couple of lessons about God Himself. Uh, the first one is extremely obvious, and that is God is sovereign, and because He is sovereign, He knows the future, and the reason He knows the future is because He determines the future. Psalm one hundred thirty nine verse sixteen says, "All the days ordained for me were written in your." book before one of them came to be. God ordains the future not only for individuals, He ordains the future for nations as well. He is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over individual people. Secondly, in order to know God, first of all, God has to make Himself known. And God is in the process of making Himself known in chapter 2 to Nebuchadnezzar. What, what He's heard so far is, is not enough to break His stony heart. But before it's all over, God will get to that point with Nebuchadnezzar. And another thing that we could that we could add as well is that clearly God answers prayer because certainly uh, uh, He certainly answered the prayer of Daniel and uh, and his three buddies. Well, what about some lessons from Daniel himself, the the young the young man? Well, uh, first of all, in dealing with any crisis situation, composure and courage and confidence in the faithfulness of God are essential. And that's certainly we certainly see that in the life of Daniel. Uh, when, when it looks like everything's caving in on us, is that where we turn? Do we turn to God and say, Lord, give me wisdom in all of this. Help me to understand what's going on. Uh, help me to maintain the right kind of attitude. Help me to be courageous. Help me to maintain my composure. Don't let me lose it in front of all of these unbelievers and let them and your name be besmirched because of some of the things that I might say or I might do. That's a good thing to remember. It's a hard thing to remember when we're in a crisis kind of situation. And then secondly, promotion and prestige and influence came to Daniel, but it didn't come because Daniel was seeking that. Remember, he was in school. But the reason it came to him because he was God's man in God's place, doing God's will in God's way and ultimately giving all the glory to God. Can we say that about our own lives? Am I God's man or woman? Am I in God's place? Am I doing God's will? And am I doing God's will in God's way? 
And as I do God's will in God's way, am I giving Him all the glory? Or am I trying to keep a little bit of it to myself? Well, and again, as I mentioned earlier, there certainly is a glimpse of the gospel in all of this. Uh, the passage from Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar has now heard about the power of God. But was he convinced to the point of repentance and faith? No, he was not. Not yet. And notice uh, the passage from 1 Peter 2. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Are we trusting in Christ? Are we trusting in ourselves? Are we falling upon the stone, broken, recognizing that we need God's help? Or are we just going to go our own way until finally the stone falls on us and crushes us? And notice the passage from Ezekiel 33. That's probably a good place to stop. Notice what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. What's the purpose of prophecy? Yes, it is to know what's coming, but it's to prepare for what's coming. And for some people, to prepare for what's coming means storing up food, storing up water, getting generators, and you know, some of that may be helpful. But don't neglect the spiritual. Don't neglect the spiritual. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.